This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. The deal to control Iran's want for the nuclear bomb will include what President Obama called the most comprehensive intrusive inspection regime ever negotiated to monitor a nuclear program. But in doing so, it has opened potentially Iran up for business again, specifically in the world world oil market being maybe the largest. But it also means that about $100 billion in frozen assets are available to the country again as well. To take a look at the uh, business aspects of this deal, we're joined here in, by, in studio by Wharton's Philip Nicholas, who's an associate professor of legal studies and business ethics. And then joining us on the phone is uh, Javad Salehi Isfahani, who's a professor of economics at Virginia Tech University, and he's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Phil, great to see you again. Thanks very much for coming back in. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Javad, great to have you on the show. Thank you for calling in. My pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh, Javad, it, besides the, the oil, which obviously we know is, is very important, where are the other areas of focus for the Iranian economy right now to try and build out? Well, tourism is one sector that's ready to go. I think a lot of people like to visit Iran. Uh, it has uh, very first-class uh, historical sites. Uh, there are also uh, local, uh, regional businesses, regional markets that Iran needs to recapture. Uh, Iran can sell auto uh, cars in all the neighboring countries. I think uh, that's probably the largest industry, manufacturing industry in Iran, employs uh, directly or indirectly about a million people. So that. That, I think, is a high priority for the government, especially in order to uh, get employment uh, going up again. Are, are they one of the bigger car manufacturers in that region of the world? Yes. They used to produce 1.6 million cars per year. And now I think they're producing under 1 million. And it's quite likely that with the proper macroeconomic management, having the right exchange rate and uh, so on, Iran can get back to one and a half million cars a a year, and that is one of the largest. I think it's not top ten in the world. When you the number of cars produced, Phil, when you look at at Iran and how their economy could build off of this, where where's your focus on? Well, actually, my focus oh. is in removing some of the bottlenecks that were created uh, after Iran's economy started declining, especially after sanctions were tightened in 2011, 2012. Uh, the biggest problem is the banking system. Uh, Iran had, like several other oil exporting countries, a uh, real estate boom. People borrowed money from banks and put it in real estate, and all those loans have gone bad now. So the banks are stuck with toxic assets they can't unload, and they can't lend to private sector. So private sector may have all these nice prospects uh, mm-hmm. with the opening of the global economy, but with interest rates, real interest rates, upwards of 5%, nearly 10% for some businesses, it's really difficult for them to borrow and to expand their businesses. That is where the economy is now stuck. They need to fix that before they can move forward. Philip? Um, 
I would agree with uh, much of all of what has just been said, but um, that we need to be very careful when we look at the Iranian economy in, in thinking that it looks like any other economy. This is an economy that 20 percent of the GDP is in the hands of a structured religious body within Iran. Uh, much of the economy is state controlled either officially or through the Revolutionary Guard or through Basij, which is a subsidiary of the Revolutionary Guard. It, it's not an economy that you can just flip a switch, uh, fix a couple of fiscal issues and the economy is off and running. This is an economy that's going to take maybe decades to normalize and fit into the global economy. Which I guess then, because of the fact that, that, that as you said, that 20% number is controlled by something outside of the true entity of the government, uh, it, it does make it interesting in terms of the leadership of Iran that is actually you know, the, the governmental run of a uh, portion of the country, how effective they can be going forward when such a large portion of the GDP is realistically not in their control. That's right. Um, that the coordinating reform efforts in Iran, whether they're economic or political or social, it presents really complex and difficult problems. And that coordination we've just not seen yet, uh, particularly in the economic sphere. How much, uh, Javad, how much is potentially uh, an important factor uh, foreign investment going forward? Because certainly that's, that's going to be a, a question that probably will be asked of a lot of people within the, uh, within the government and the business community of Iran. Yeah, I think that is uh, more in the longer run. Right okay. now, I am not very optimistic that foreigners are going to invest big time in Iran, partly because of the problems that uh, Philip mentioned, uh, maybe starting with $10 billion a year, uh, it's not a whole lot. Uh, maybe some of it would be in the oil sector, which is kind of external to Iran. Part of the problem with foreign investment in Iran is that it draws the ire of these conservative, religious conservative establishments that don't like to see too many foreigners, perhaps uh, the women not covered well, and, uh, or even for tourist industries that I mentioned earlier, that is a problem. So I suspect at the beginning, uh, the government is going to encourage sort of offshore uh, foreign investment. That would be in the oil and gas sector. Uh, there are some movements in the auto industry. Mercedes-Benz uh, had a deal the other day. Uh, they were ready to sign it, and they, they're going to produce uh, cars and trucks, uh, mostly yeah. trucks, actually. Uh, so I think in the long run, it could easily get to 20 or $30 billion a year, which is a you know, close to eight, ten percent of the GDP, but in the short run, I think FDI foreign direct investment has to will wait to make sure that the climate, in uh, especially the political climate in the country, is stable, and the conservatives who do hold a lot of power uh, are welcoming foreign investment. They're not going to cause trouble. And certainly this is something that, uh, Philip, is, as this kind of develops, uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how this all plays out in terms of the relationship uh, with the United States going forward, because obviously with this deal being put in place, it's already been mentioned now on, on quite a few occasions that there are certain entities that are friendly with the United States that are not happy that a deal like this went through in the first place. Sure. Um, the tensions in that region between Saudi and between Iran... Uh, have only escalated in the last 
couple of months. Um, Saudi has long been an ally, a strong ally of the United States. Iran, uh, United States, um, to, don't get along to put it mildly. Yeah. Um, it will be interesting to see. I mean, the United States very much wants Iran's help with Syria and with um, Islamic State. It will be interesting to see how all of this plays out. It's difficult to predict right now, particularly given the ebbing of strength of some of these countries with the diminishing price of oil. Javad? Yeah, well, I think in the long run, just to look at the Saudi-Iran relationship, I think Iran, uh, in some ways, is a better partner for the United States. For one thing, it is determined to fight ISIS and extremism, in the Sunni extremism in the Middle East, whereas Saudi Arabia is very ambivalent about it. You know, the yeah. part of Saudi society is supporting it, part is fighting it, and so on. And also, Iran has a very large middle class uh, that is very pro-West, maybe not quite pro-United States, yeah, that... but <laughs> the kind of economy they are looking for, the kind of uh, global relations they're looking for are very much uh, stable, looking for peaceful trade. I don't know exactly how Iranian politics is going to uh, look in five or ten years, but with uh, half the society uh, classified as middle class and wanting a normal relation with the rest of the world, it's very likely that things will move in the right direction. I would, I would be cautious about one thing, and, and certainly I defer to um, people who spend far more time in Iran than myself. But um, we we tend to think of the world as as them and us. And, and Iran, you know, represents something else. There's a strong, strong culture there, thousands of years old, that, that has good reason, and, and I'm not trying to be critical of the United States, but has good reason not to trust the United States. Yeah. I, I, I think the Iranian people are looking for a, a different path that isn't necessarily in the warm embrace of, of just the United States. Uh, we are also joined on the phone right now for a few minutes by uh, actually a Wharton grad who is a senior partner and co-founder of Arjan Capital. Uh, Nicholas Gilani joins us on the phone right now, who actually is joining us from Tehran. Uh, Nick, great to have you on the show for a few minutes. Good to be here. Thank you very much. Well, good to be on the line with you guys. Thank you. You are obviously there right in the heart of, uh, of this right now. What has been the reaction uh, if, to this deal uh, from the people there on the ground? Overwhelmingly positive. Overwhelmingly positive. What is it outside of oil that, that and we've uh, touched on this already, but what is it outside of oil that, that you see as the focus for the Iranian, Iranian economy right now, in, at least in the short term? Cash, 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 liquidity, liquidity, liquidity. The country is not insolvent, but it's got thousands upon thousands of incomplete projects, and the banking sector is uh, pretty much uh, in a state of deep coma, and they just need liquidity, and it's wide open for foreign investment. What does this also mean for, for Hassan Rouhani uh, in terms of running the country? Because we've also talked about how uh, the, the GDP has, has a good portion of it, which is realistically not under his control. I don't know. Uh, I guess what you, um, when you say the GDP and not under his control, I suppose you're referring to uh, so-called uh, quasi-public or quasi-private investment institutions. Uh, to me, that's a generalization. If you mean... Uh, I mean, Iran is essentially is um, uh, most of the assets are controlled by the government, which is not 
irregular in many countries such as Iran, or even in Saudi Arabia, where you probably have heard that Aramco is going to be IPO'd. Uh, unless you mean the other way that uh, there are institutions that are uh, that are acting in ways that are that gov- that are outside the control of the government, because it's important to distinguish within the government, which is Hassan al Rouhani, and and what you imply by that, or one of your guests implied by uh, institutions that are not necessarily under the control of the government. Right. But I can tell you this: that uh, today on the plane, I just read the. Um, speech by Hassan Rouhani to the Chamber of Commerce, where he said, listen, government is sick and tired of being a, an owner and uh, and a big player in the government, in, 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 the, in, in the business or in the commerce. You guys, the private sector, you guys got to take a lead. You're just going to be re- regulators because we can't do a job better than you, can, you guys can. And he really meant it. So, I, and besides, for one simple reason, the government cannot control anything anymore. The government doesn't have cash to... to to provide financing, so the, the one way is to uh, so essentially the government's policies is resting on two repeat two columns or two pillars. One is FDI, the other one is the private sector within Iran. Without the FDI, they cannot do anything, and without the public uh, private sector participation, they cannot do anything. And that sector that you refer to is the quasi quasi state, which is not under the control of the government. Nobody knows what the size of that is, but. Uh, I'm sure uh, under the under the, the gravitational forces that are at play right now, um, so, um, they will sooner or later will come to their senses. But uh, I will not be too much worried about it. Uh, FDI is coming as we speak now. Uh, there's no more hotel rooms available. There's the foreign delegation, whether uh, government delegations or private sector delegations from Germany, from Switzerland, from Japan. Everybody's in town. Hmm. Uh, they are coming by boatload and they fly out and everyone is busy trying to do deals here. In fact, I heard that the oil companies are very busy here. Boeing, I read in the press, Boeing and Airbus are going to be are busy negotiating. So uh, it's pretty interesting because you have to look at it in, in under this major context. Uh, the GCC nations are going through a major recession. Whereas, whereas I mean, in fact, the entire emerging market has Iran because of this that means essentially the GDP growth rate of Iran for this year and next year is going to be far higher than Saudi's. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's quite exciting times. It's the it's last major emerging market at the time. So there's... And it's occurring at a time when the, the rest of the world is going through a recession except barring the United States. So there's really not that much of a concern right now of of building out partnerships, as you kind of alluded to, with a variety of different countries wanting to get the, get in there as quickly as possible. Sure. There's not, not much concern. I mean, the only concern they should have is at the, at the business level. In other words, make sure your partner is a good one. Yeah. Make sure you, you cross your T's and dot the I's, and you have to have a good attorney. And one more thing, because I worked in both GCC and Iran. GCC refers to the countries of the southern part of the Persian Gulf, Saudi, UAE, and Oman. In those countries, it's 51-49 ownership, 51 to the local, 49 to the foreigners, which is a pure rentier system or agency system. In Iran, a foreigner can own 100%. 100%. In the case of banks, a foreigner can own 100% of a bank if it's free zone, like on Kish Island, and up to 40%. If they want to do a joint venture, in fact, one of the sectors that I'm really um, gunning for, and I think foreigners should pay a lot of attention, is the finance sector, is the banking sector, because the banks here pretty much are saddled with lots of NPLs, very, very high NPL levels, non-performing loans. Mm-hmm. So good, 
way to make money in this country and enter the country and see the traffic flow of market intelligence is by setting up a bank. The, I, I don't want to be um, negative, and I strongly encourage people to move toward Iran. But I'm showing my age now. Uh, I've, I've, I'm having flashbacks to when the Soviet Union collapsed and Russia opened up. And, and the hotels in Moscow were, were full to the brim. Probably not as nice of hotels as in Tehran, but full to the brim. Everybody was talking to everybody. And then we and 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 uh, um, ownership laws were everything was wide open. Twenty years later, uh, we're still trying to untangle how to effectively long-term invest in in Russia. So uh, you know, yes. I I I I the I would encourage anybody to go. And it's a great place to get into. It's certainly not the last emerging economy. We got the whole African yeah. continent ready to open up at some point. But the I would I would I would look to the past a little bit, and 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 yeah. and be suggest that people be very yeah. careful. One one condition that we have here that we don't have didn't have in Russia is that always the potential, particularly in the finance industry, which is most vulnerable, of snapback provisions of of. An immediate right, cessation right. of the ability to have relationships with financial institutions. So I, I would look to right. the past. Yeah, the, there's one big difference between Iran now and so, uh, Soviet Union back then, and that is, Soviet economy was very much a socialist communist economy. Iran mm-hmm. is very much private sector. There are, there is a lot of public ownership, but the dynamic force uh, is the private sector, and there's a tradition of strong private sector in Iran that never quite disappeared, all but maybe 10 years during the war with Iraq, where the private sector was very much suppressed. It bounced right back with the first uh, moderate president, Rafsanjani, that was elected in 1989. So I think that uh, the legal system in Iran is very much private sector oriented, but there are these shadow forces, revolutionary guards and so on, that do own property and can be a problem. I think the challenge for the government is to put push those forces back, to open up the space for the private sector so that they can invest with confidence, not just for a year or two of making quick bucks, but for 10, 20 years. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. We're talking about the Iran deal from an economic perspective with Wharton's Philip Nicholas, Virginia Tech's Javad Salahi Isfahani, and also Nicholas Gilani, who is a Wharton grad and senior partner and co-founder of Arjan Capital, who is joining us from Tehran today. I guess, uh, Nick, you mentioned about the banking uh, sector being obviously a very important piece of this. How fractured is it at this point, and how much, how long will it take to to really get it to a a solid up and running level? Well, that's a great question. Um, by the way, just a comment to the professor. Uh, professor, I was in Moscow last month, um, and I think one uh, the other participant, uh, Mr. Javad, uh, Professor uh, Salahi, said from Virginia Tech, Iran has got three thousand years of capitalist history. Whereas in Russia, uh, and I'm fairly familiar with uh, Russia because of, uh, many investment bankers who uh, worked in Russia with the likes of Brinkap and all that. In Russia, there was no tradition of capitalism, at least for 70 years. And it was a free, wild west. And the budget system and all that good stuff that happened. 
in Iran, you, ha- uh, you have a this capitalism, a bazaari mentality. So for them to get back into the swing of things, it uh, it requires modifications. And also, one thing that Iran has got that Russia never had, Iran has got a huge diaspora of Iranians. But there are Iranian Americans, Iranian British, French, Iranian Swiss, and they're either wealthy or educated or both. They will gladly come back and help modernize, and we'll just say modernize, a financialized nation, and it's just a matter of I'd say four years, five years to fully catch up. With respect to the snapbacks, snapbacks are not that as easy. I don't know, I'm not an attorney, but if you read the JCPO agreement, um, I think the snapbacks go, will have to go through a torturous process, including Security Council resolution. That means Russia and, and China will not easily um, uh, allow this snapback to occur. And, and finally, I don't think the Iranians are going to be that stupid to, to get involved in, in whatever activities that would facilitate or that would uh, trigger a snapback, which by in any event, it's not going to be as easy uh, as one would think. Bank, as to as for the banks, um, the banks there is a, a multitude of private banks here, but the banks under Ahmadinejad, essentially, instead of doing lending, they were forced to lend for unprofitable projects, which is a crime in my opinion. And number two, they invested in real estate. So instead of act, acting as as uh, Jeremy Siegel used to say, accepting deposits and giving loans to worthy projects that had proper IRRs, they just engaged in speculation. Mm-hmm. So they have essentially relinquished their role as 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 centers of liquidity for the economy. So I don't really don't have much hope for Iranian banks unless they really have to, uh, in terms of Basel, Basel 1, Basel 2, Basel 3, they're not even ready. Perfect opportunity for lots of major European banks and banks. And I'm a big proponent of American and essentially set up banks with a clean balance sheet. Um, that's 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 one area that I think tremendous of money to be made. Javad, I just want to make a okay. quick correction on okay. the snapbacks. Snapbacks are designed so that they cannot be vetoed by Russia or China. They are actually easier to put back. Uh, they don't require a resolution in the Security Council. I think it is true that Iranians are going to be extremely careful not to undo all the work they have done. You know, they've put a lot of effort into dismantling centrifuges and putting uh, cement into the uh, core of the reactor in Iraq. They're going to be extremely careful. But Iran is a divided society. There is going to be a big election, and there are conservatives who are really afraid this uh, move towards the global economy is going to undermine their power, mm-hmm. and they might do stupid stuff that may hamper Rouhani's and private sector's project for economic growth. Uh, so we have to be watching things carefully. There's an election in February, and that is going to be a very critical election to see if moderation is going to penetrate deeper into the Iranian political structure, structure than just the government. I, I have an observation to make. Iran is not a divided society. The ruling regime may be divided, but the Iranian people are probably the most pro-Western people in the entire South Asia and the Middle East. If you come to see Iran, you will see it's young, educated, at times secular. At times, you will even see atheists on the street. So they, they know one thing. They want to come back to the world. To the I grew up in the 70s in Iran, where the Iranians used to be either Marxist or socialist, but if anyone has ever taken accounting at, at Wharton, FIFO, first in, first out, the Iranian people fell, fell into this Islamic fundamentalism germ, 
and they're the first nation in the entire Middle East, in fact, in, in the entire Islamic world, to come out, out of it alive and successful. The young people are not divided. It's the regime that has certain elements whose economic interests are jeopardized. But I don't think Rouhani is going to allow things to, to, to go back to the times of Ahmadinejad, because if it does, that will be the death of the regime. So they will not even, for the sake of their own, their own survival, will step back and do the nasty things that Ahmadinejad did. That's my view, because I come here pretty much once a month, and I see that the, 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 mood, the mood here is optimism, and they, want, they don't want to make any more mistakes again, and they just want to move and rejoin the world community. But having said that, there are certain people within the United States, within the Gulf countries of Saudi Arabia, and as well as some some right-wingers or conservatives within Iran, that they, their life seems to be the way they were. And it all has to do with with money. Because it's, it's Iran coming in and rejoining the world community of nations, you're going to see within five years, just apply the rule of 72, you're going to see easily a $1 trillion economy. And the Saudis and the Turks and certain people are not happy to see that. Simple as that. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.